Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Compositionally speaking, the tea paunch is about as simple as it gets in the cocktail realm. But we know better than to judge a drink by its list of components, listener. And when you do start to dig deeper on this one, that's when things get real interesting. Not only does the name of this cocktail sound great, when you say tea punch, you immediately feel like you're in the know. You know what I mean? In terms of preparation, this drink is the ultimate DIY endeavor, even if you're ordering it at the bar. And while its three simple ingredients are more than familiar to us by this point, they arrive in a completely unexpected guise. One that will challenge your taste buds and also your preconceptions about temperature and refreshment. Leading us on a swizzled agricole exploration today is Christian Favier, who runs Charleston's beloved island bar, The Ordinary. At his menu there, he blends reinterpretations of classics with playful proprietary creations. And over the course of today's show, he puts all of his experience to great use, allowing us to appreciate one of the most simple yet simultaneously complex concoctions going. It's time for us to each prepare our own deaths, listener. And by that, I mean grab some lime, cane syrup, and rum agricole, and strap yourself in for another episode of the Cocktail College Podcast. I was thinking about this one and I was thinking, you know, rum, lime and sugar. We're here to talk about that holiest of trinities in the bar world today, Christine Favier. It really is the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? It sure is. Uh, there there has never been uh, a more well put together trio uh, in any uh, any sense. In the, yeah, especially in that, in that bar sphere and just... You know, three seemingly simple ingredients, very straightforward, but the results, the, the the possibilities seem endless. We've covered a couple of those on this show before, the most notable of which, of course, being the daiquiri. More recently, we've done the caipirinha. And today, we're here to talk about the tea punch. What a great drink that is. About as good as it gets. And... um you know, through that lens of those those three ingredients and 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 the one the drink that we're focusing on today, let's 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 start by um, can you explain how it differs? What makes this notable? What makes this different to those other um, drinks that that do apply that combination? Absolutely. So, tea punch is different specifically in its proportions. Um, when you talk about that holy trinity of rum, lime, and sugar, um, a lot of times we're, we're talking about balance and, and how to balance those three ingredients in, uh, in perfect harmony, especially when you speak on the daiquiri and you speak on the, the caipirinha and, and even the offshoots in, in the mojito. Um, you have this idea of, of, enough lime to balance out the sugar so you get this sweet and sour and then those those ingredients with the rum are are softening it and it's it's becoming this very cohesive drink well tea punch tea punch is is a rum drink tea punch 
is some seasoned rum, rum seasoned with some lime and sugar rather than a, a harmonious combination of the three. Thank you. I think that's a great explanation on on how this differs and I love that idea of this just being a a kind of seasoned rum because as we'll get into when we look at the proportions and things it really is different to those others those other specs there and and almost in a way of just what we've come to expect when it comes to cocktails uh, in general or the way that we approach cocktails these days um, this being you know that that seasoned rum as you mentioned, Let's let's talk about the rum. We don't need to get too far into it. We'll do that later. But the rum is what makes this drink different and gives it ident- it gives its identity as well, isn't it? Can you tell us about where this is coming from and the rum specifically that we're using for this? Absolutely. So tea punch is made specifically from rum agricole, um, and rum agricole is. Uh, traditionally coming from uh, the French Caribbean islands. Um, nowadays, it's it's made in a lot of places, but um, you're talking about rum made in the French Caribbean specifically from sugarcane juice as opposed to molasses. And this was due to, to necessity um, by sugarcane planters on the islands um, and kind of where where it is coming from originally is Martinique um, who kind of spearheaded the idea of making rum with sugarcane juice as opposed to the byproduct of sugar production. Fantastic. And, um, and when we look at that name as well, uh, I think one of the notable things about this one as well is, you know, yeah, French speaking Caribbean, the T stands for petite and that kind of, so we're talking about like a small punch here. That's my interpretation. That's my understanding. Is that correct on the, on the name of the drink and how that ties back to Martinique as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, you look at the name T punch, which is petite punch, um, you know, the first time you ever really see that written is uh, in like 1890. There's a book called Two Years in the French West Indies. And um, really, you go back the first time anybody was writing about tea punch was 1890s. But, um, you know, you talk about punch as an idea. Uh, and, you know, Washington before George Washington <laughs> uh, was, was drinking punch um, before America was a country, right? Um, punch, you see punch throughout history, you see punch for as long as rum has existed. Um, so it's, it's safe to say that, uh, punch was being drank in, in the French Caribbean, uh, for a lot longer than 1890. Uh, it's just the tea punch and that name given to it, uh, might've came a little bit later. The, the petite part of it is, uh, reference to the fact that it, it is a smaller serve in general and, and not meant to be a whole cocktail, but also in uh, in the ingredients being used in a much smaller quantity. And and back in that time, do we have any idea of what that serve might have looked like? You mentioned it's probably on the smaller side compared to to, to other drinks, but um, just in terms of build or things like that, are we are we familiar? Do we know what that might have looked like, say in that you know eighteen nineties and whatnot? Not specifically. There's there's not a lot of great written history for when and where this drink and and where French rum in general uh, gets its origins. Um, you know, when uh, Lafcadio Hearn uh, in that two years in the French West Indies book, um, you know, writes about it, he he says that it's it's just rum 
and a little bit of sugar uh, swizzled in a small glass. Uh, it foregoes the lime altogether and then uh, more noticeably the ice. Um, but besides that, we don't really see people talking about it until probably another 20 and 30 years where rum companies start to capitalize on uh, the tea punch. And at that part, it was already a staple in uh, Martinican culture. Very nice. And you mentioned something there that I, I really want us to dive into early too, which is the lack of ice early on. Now, of course, um, it's a conversation that we have a lot. Of course, the, the ice industry is something that builds up over time and it's easy to forget that was in no way as readily available as we have it now. But temperature of this drink in particular is one that continues to drive conversations, would you say? Or it's, it's certainly something to talk about because are there maybe a few schools of thought? Oh, 100%. And, you know, I think it all comes with the caveat of, of everybody should drink how uh, they want to drink and um, drink what they enjoy drinking. <laughs> and also to say that, uh, you know, the, this drink and, and no drink is, is a monolith in how it can be enjoyed. Um, when you're talking about how it's drank in Martinique and how it's always been drank in Martinique, uh, you're talking about sans ice there's no no ice in a tea punch uh when it's being served to you in martinique and that is to say if you ask for some ice they're not going to scoff at you they're not going to turn their nose up at you they're going to give you some ice and and i'm sure that there are uh plenty of people who are born and raised there who do drink their tea punch with ice um it's just not not a traditional way so i you know you see a lot of modern bartenders kind of taking that formula as a suggestion and, um, you know, seeing how they can make the tea punch a great drink for uh, maybe a, a more uh, Western palate in terms of uh, chill down and diluted. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's super interesting that the, the, there are these multiple interpretations and it speaks to that idea of... Um, sort of a collision between, in a good way, a collision between um, maybe different approaches over time and also different traditions. What do we gain by serving this drink at a, a room temperature um, versus, say, you know, with ice or chilled beforehand or built over ice? What, what are some of the advantages and the pros in that column? Well, I think that, uh, you know, it's it's a very casual serve. This is not the type of drink that you go into a bar and get. You know, this is something that you are drinking uh, in your backyard. This is something that you're drinking um, while walking through the market. You know, this is something that you are drinking on your break at work, uh, realistically, <laughs> if you're talking about Martinique. Very nice. Um, you know, you're you're in the, in the store looking at... Uh, looking at bags and, and the person behind the counter just whips out a bottle and, and pours themselves a little, a little tea punch. Um, and it's, that's just, it's so inherent, um, to the culture, um, that I think there, there's that part of it where it's, it's this very kind of, uh, rudiment. It's not this, um, ritualistic cocktail, you know, where, where there's this whole, um, spirituals or, or, uh, ethereal side to it where there's, there's this whole thing to mixing and getting the ice right and getting the dilution perfect. It is very, a very casual serve that you can just kind of, uh, throw together, um, and just sip over time. I think the other part of, uh, not having ice is, is that, 
uh, you're not going to have any dilution or temperature change. It, it just is what it is. Yeah, that's great. And and also, I would imagine, too, that even though we are adding those seasonings, this is a wonderful way to appreciate the room agricole. And if we're tasting things analytically or just for the first time spirits, we don't put those over ice. We don't shake them with ice first and then strain them, right? The the way that we like to do it first would be at that kind of room temperature, ideally not too hot, but that's the way that we can really appreciate the spirit most. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think um, there aren't a ton of producers of agricole, and, and I can say that every single producer of agricole that I've uh, tasted um, does so uh, in a very thoughtful way. Um, they make rum in a way that they think about the aroma and the taste and who's drinking it and in what context they're drinking it to where, uh, you know, I, I think that if you're going to be drinking it neat or you're going to be drinking it with, with a little seasoning, like we say, uh, then it, it doesn't need uh, to be diluted down. It's, it's meant to be drank exactly how it was made. Mm-hmm. And then you also mentioned that traditionally or if you go to martinique this is maybe not a kind of cocktail that features on menus or especially perhaps in in kind of cocktail focused establishments is that also the case over here in the us would you say because obviously there are there are a number of bartenders who have focused themselves more on the rum based drinks and 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 kind of island cocktails tiki-esque tiki adjacent would you say that this drink does feature on menus or again it's it's one of those ones that perhaps it's so simple that it's hard to find a place for it absolutely no i um it's it's a really difficult drink to have served in a bar um you know at, at the ordinary we we really focus ourselves on those classic uh caribbean drinks and and really focus in on um drinks that were invented uh on the islands and um, it's, it's something that I wrestled with. I knew I had to have a tea punch on the menu because I really wanted to make it accessible for people. And, and I didn't know how to do it and how to claim like, this is the best way to drink this drink, because I don't believe that, that drinking it at a, at a bar, um, is the best way to drink it. Um, so really what we had to go with was, uh, another kind of tradition um, in Martinique, which is uh, a saying that they have there specifically in regards to Tiponche, which is chacun prépare ses propres morts, which uh, translates to each prepares their own death, um, <laughs> which is, is their approach to serving Tiponche. If you go into a restaurant, if you go into a bar and you order a Tiponche, what they'll do is they'll put a bottle of rum, a glass, a couple slices of lime and a bottle of cane syrup on your table. Um, they do not make it for you. They will if you ask, but they do not make it for you. They give you all of the tools to make it yourself um, because it is a very personal drink and the way that you drink it uh, is, is a very personal thing. And so we, we did that same thing. We said, you know, we, how, how can we make this, you know, gussy it up a little bit, but still follow that same idea of here's your lime, here's your sugar, here's your rum uh, and, and make the drink that you want to drink. How does that work from a kind of um, charging guests perspective? I know that seems very, very bland or, 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 you know, kind of a boring aspect, but just the rum side of things, like how do you, how do you charge for that? How do you, 
yeah, how do you allow for that? Well, I, I think you you kind of give the recommendation and you sell it in a way uh, of this is maybe the ideal way that you can be drinking that. This is how you should approach yeah. uh, this. And then from there, you you kind of uh, you know you you keep a you keep a watchful eye, but you also um, you know trust trust people to. Uh, know the, the space they're in and, and to pay respect to the ingredients and, and mm-hmm. to the people working there and to the bartenders and, and everything like that, where, uh, yeah, no, nobody thus far has, has tried to pull a fast one. On <laughs> me, so. No, I think that, that I think, and that really speaks to the nature of the drink too. There's this kind of trust and familiarity and, and the whole idea of the cocktail itself. It also reminds me of those incredible scenes we see in movies, but I don't think I've ever really seen at a bar where it's like someone sits down and they get the bottle and they're just pouring themselves shot after shot. And I've always wondered, you know, are, are they measuring how much was in the bottle beforehand or is it just this, this trust, as you say? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, people, people will, uh, wave me down and they'll be like, is it, is it okay if I do another one? I'm like, yeah, that's what it's there for. You know, <laughs> that's a really cool way to, to, to serve this and, uh, and a really nice offering too. If it's yourself that sat on the other side of that bar and you're preparing it, we'll get into your, your ideal preparation method and, and kind of thoughts towards it, but just keen to hear what you're looking for from from the drink itself what are you hoping to get what are you expecting when you approach this um this wonderful little trio of ingredients yeah i mean uh, i think that it's really uh it's, it's difficult to mess up um rum lime and sugar um but I think what I'm looking for from like a, a very idealized version uh, all comes down to the sugar and uh, the lime. As long as you're serving me agricole, I'm, I'm happy. Um, but when it comes to the sugar and the lime, that's kind of where you can get into a sticky situation. A, uh, with the sugar, um, if you give me simple syrup, that, that for me, won't quite cut it. Um, yeah. I think that the drink benefits heavily from having a, a richer style cane syrup, um, which has been refuted by other people who say, oh, people use white cane or just like a distilled white sugar uh, and they love it. I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah, go for it. For me personally, uh, I, I always want that that richer cane syrup. Uh, and then the lime, um, which I think if you go to... Um, another French speaking country, or you go to France and you get a tea punch, uh, unlike in America, you might get a funny look in, in a bar in America for tea punch. Like what, what is that? You go to France and they say, Oh yeah, absolutely coming right up. And then they'll give you, um, you know, like a big fat lime wedge to squeeze in there. Um, which is, is not the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, the way, the way that you should always have it and the way that it's always served will be, um, with a, a lime coin, uh, where you're talking about 90% to 99% just of the the skin and the pith with maybe a little bit of flesh and a couple drops of juice in there. Um, but you're really looking to to season it with the lime oil and not the lime juice. That's fascinating. And and from a, again, from an operational perspective, this being something that you offer, what does that look like in terms of the rest of the lime? You're still able to juice juice that, use it for other things. How many coins can you get from one line when you're one line when you're preparing it for this drink? Yeah. So if you if you can you can get three coins out of a lime, and I think that's actually the perfect 
amount of lime is, is if you cut it at that little cross section and, and you basically make a triangle uh, out of the lime by cutting three coins off of, off of the sides. Uh, and then, yeah, absolutely. We have a, we have a little, um, kind of, uh, the holder off to the side that we keep all of those spent limes, um, and, and we'll juice them. We'll take the rest of the peel. We'll make an oleosaccharum and then a, a lime cordial out of those as well. Um, so none of the lime ever goes to waste. Very nice. And yeah, I'm, I'm assuming as well when it comes to service, you know, this is not something that's going to take you a long time to prepare. So probably not something as well that when you're going into service, you want to prepare like 20, 30 of these coins, maybe just have a small amount on hand and be prepared to create some others uh, a la minute. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm zealous about the tea punch, obviously, but uh, we're in Charleston, South Carolina, and I, I don't know if it's caught on quite yet. So we're not making a uh, hundred of them night quite yet. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, and I would imagine also from that perspective of getting the, the, the lime oil and just the freshness, both from the juice and, and, and the citrus there, is it something you actually definitely want to be preparing aluminum just to, to maintain that freshness and so that nothing, no part of that fruit is starting to dry out a little bit. Totally. Um, you definitely can, can cut it to order and, you know, because you should be dropping the lime in there anyway, because I think as that, as that lime coin kind of sits in the drink over time, um, you just get a little bit more maceration of the oil and yeah, always, always go with fresh room temperature. Um, Definitely. Wonderful. And, um, you know, just fun here from our perspective at Cocktail College, because lime is an ingredient that comes up in many different drinks. And over time, it becomes hard to say, okay, what else can we say about the lime on top of, you know, fresh is best. And maybe there's certain preparations like the gimlet where we're creating a, a cordial. But here, that's, that's fun to hear about the lime coins. And yeah, something that hasn't come up with we haven't explored before. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how much that, uh, rum agricole and lime oil, um, play, uh, so nicely together to the point that, um, there's, there's this great technique called the Royal shake where you, you throw a citrus peel in your shaker when you shake up a drink where even, um, anytime I'm making a, a shaken or a traditional daiquiri, but with rum agricole, you throw a lime peel in the shaker with it because that little bit of extra lime oil really sets off rum agricole. Yeah. Classic technique right there. When we've, when we've maybe, uh, yeah, chatted a little bit about before too. Um, next ingredient I want to go, rum agricole because I'm thinking we could go down the uh, cane sugar of course but I think exploring agricole first helps us set it up and helps us set up what we're looking for from that sweetening component afterwards so you mentioned that this is you know fermented then distilled from um, fresh cane juice can you talk a little bit more about the production process and then ultimately, if you would like to share some of your favorite producers for this, um, for, for this spirit and also this drink? Yeah, so to get into kind of why we make agricole the way we do, um, you can kind of rewind to, to why it was started in the first place. Um, Martinique and, and other French uh, 
speaking Caribbean countries didn't always make agricole rum. They made traditional style rum um, for probably the same amount of time they've been making agricole. Uh, but then you go up into, you know, 1811, um, the British put a blockade on Napoleon. Um, so he wasn't able to bring sugar in from the Caribbean into France. So he heavily invested in uh, these colleges that were specifically dedicated to cultivating sugar from beets. And uh, by 1840, they have huge production up um, for turning beets into sugar. By yeah, 1840, we're talking 5% of the whole world's uh, sugar was made from beets in France. Wow. And, and by 1880, that goes up to 50% of the world's sugar, uh, was being made, uh, in France or, or by then throughout Europe, uh, by beets. And so French sugar production was effectively crippled over the course of 50 years. And you have these islands that were dedicated to growing and processing sugar that no longer had an industry, but still had all of the resources. So what happens is uh, there, there's no molasses because there is no uh, sugar. And so they're taking that sugar cane that they're now having to cut down every year anyway, and they're crushing it. They're juicing it fresh and they're letting that ferment and distill the same way that they were doing with, uh, the molasses and you have your first agricoles coming out. Um, these are coming out of, uh, Creole column stills somewhere in between a rudimentary pot still and, and, uh, you know, some, some column stills that were coming over from cognac um, that were kind of put together and make a very, very unique flavor uh, that really lends itself to that rum. Uh, and so, yeah, by the late 1800s, really, you have, um, you have agricole kind of in full swing as the only uh, type of rum being made in Martinique and most of the French islands. And then you have a hundred years until 19 or yeah, 1996, um, that they gain AOC status. Martinique is still technically France today. Um, and because of that, uh, rum agricole was gained AOC or Appellation Origine Controle status, um, which is the legal denomination that is what rum is and isn't in Martinique. Um, so you're talking, you know, whether it be a good thing or a bad thing, you have a lot of rules that were imposed on agricole rum making, uh, that dictate its quality, um, the quantity that can be made, who can make it and what type of sugar cane they can use. Um, and now we're talking about, um, 25, 26 years now of rum production. The, the AOC was rewritten in 2014. Uh, and it's, it's a really unique look at um, how making a designation of, of what rum is and isn't would look like on other islands. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a big conversation happening in the rum world about um, geographical indicators and, and designations of Jamaican rum and Barbados rum and um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't have a specific opinion on the matter, <laughs> but um, we can look to uh, Martinique AOC as uh, does it work. Yeah. And, and, and certainly seems to be a conversation within rum too that, 
you know, just having perhaps maybe slightly more guidelines or, um, you know, I think it's maybe quite intertwined with this idea of transparency of processes and origin and things like that. I think, like you say, it's 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 something that's very hard to judge or who, who should we be the ones to, but I think there are definitely some sort of... Um, some checks in that column in favor of doing that and um like you say this this AOC there in Martinique does give us this this concrete concrete evidence of of what it looks like and how that can maybe maintain an identity absolutely and it's it's all about transparency and um you know the argument against is that it it stifles creativity but you know i think that there is variation around there and 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 you, when you know that there's nothing being added to your rum, when you know there's nothing, uh, no coloring or flavoring or, or shady business practices, then you can uh, kind of have an ease of mind of the product that you're buying and the money that you're spending. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with Martinique Agricole, you also have this kind of built-in sustainability, right? They're limited in the amount of sugarcane they can use uh, per hectare that they grow. They can only use sugarcane from designated areas that are known to have good soil that reproduce year over year. Uh, and the in, in a lot of cases, the byproduct of the sugarcane crushing are used to power um, their distilleries itself. And so there's so much good happening out of um, these designations and out of these distilleries because of it. Um, I think kind of the coolest of them uh, is La Favorite, um, who, like I said, their entire, um, production, their entire operation, um, was being run historically by burning the, uh, leftover fibers from the crushed sugarcane. Now they have a little, little museum and, and shop on there. So they have a little electricity going on. Um, but, uh, historically, that's how they were powering everything. And they were making really, really, really incredible rum and and still are um, certainly one of my favorites and really hard to find Mm -hmm. some of their uh, more aged stuff around here. But uh, if you can get your hands on it, it's it's some of the best. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that's interesting about agriculture just in, in general is despite being made from this, um, you know, you'd imagine that fresh paint, fresh pressed cane juice is, uh, is sweeter than molasses in many respects. Um, molasses, of course, you know, has a, a even more complex profile maybe, but in terms of the final spirits, this, this lands a lot more on the drier side, doesn't it? Than, a, than a, a molasses based rum. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, um, drier. It's, it's grassy, it's vegetal, it's, it's bright and it's sharp. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with, um, what comes through on the other side of, of distilling, which is, um, not all of that sugar that's left over. And I think a lot of that is, is used up in the fermentation. Um, but it's really that freshness and that, that, um, real earthiness that comes from having a very fresh product. Um, and, and it's really kind of a, a study in, in terroir in spirits, yeah. maybe more than, than any other spirit on earth, because, uh, that freshness varies, um, you know, depending on where you're getting your sugar cane, you, you talk about, uh, rum JM who, uh, makes a cuvee where they're sourcing all of their sugar cane from, uh, 
volcanic soils because they're right at the base of Mount Pele. Um, all of the sugarcane is coming from uh, sugarcane grown on the volcano. Uh, so it's all volcanic soil. And then you move all the way down to somewhere like La Mauni, uh, in the very south of the island, um, where it's very mountainous and very jungly and, and, you know, a hop, skip and a jump from the ocean. And you get this much more saline, much rockier, um, driven product. And it's, it's pretty wild that it, on the other side of distillation, you can kind of really taste those things. You can taste that sense of place. You can say, taste that terroir. Um, and which I think is, is, uh, kind of the real beauty of the, the fresh juice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and also probably speaks to as well, again, is helped by those, um, designations and whatnot, just from the kind of, as you mentioned before, those those specific areas that you're supposed to be growing in that have been identified and whatnot. And yeah, I think anyone that gets into spirits and this kind of thing, terroir, that idea uh, might seem a bit more elusive, but it's wonderful when we do discover that in a category or a style. Yeah, I it, it's it's um, I've never I think the only other place in the world of spirits that I've ever really tasted terroir was, was in, in Calvados with, with mm-hmm. apples. Um, and obviously in, in some other, uh, sugarcane juice based rums as well coming from, uh, from Haiti and Guadeloupe and Marie Gallant mm-hmm. and, and La Reunion, which technically are all agricole, but, uh, depending on who you ask, technically aren't as well, um, <laughs> without that legal denomination, without that AOC status. I think that, um, there's some, some agricole purists who will say it's, it's not agricole. Yeah. Um, but I, I think of agricole as a style and, and not specifically, uh, a legal designation. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a little bit back there too that um, you know some of the rum JM. I think it was you know the, the the more aged styles can be tough to get hold of. For the tea punch though, are you? What are we talking about classically here? Unaged or does it not matter? Or, or can you basically plug whatever you want into it? Yeah, I wouldn't say whatever you want. I think that there is a certain age where it starts to be kind of. Um, there's not a whole lot of benefit from it. Um, I personally uh, prefer a tea punch made with with a Blanc Agricole. But when you're talking about Blanc Agricole, you're almost ubiquitously talking about something that's higher proof. Um, because as they age, uh, rum and Martinique, they, they drop the proof down and down and down. Uh, so when you're talking about Blanc Agricole, you're usually talking about 50 to 55%. Uh, and as it gets older, as it spends more time in a barrel, they will um, proof it down um, because they believe that uh, the older a rum gets, the more they all start to taste the same. And it's really in the aroma that uh, you find the differences. And so they proof the rum down so the aromas kind of blossom mm-hmm. uh, more than they would at a higher proof. Um, but to that, I think there's this this happy middle ground there. Uh there's, there's the Blanc rum and then there is uh, kind of the Vaux rum, which is, is your older rum. And then in between those two are the Elevé sous bois heightened by wood. Um, and those rums really make a fantastic tea punch because they kind of toe the line between uh, that really bright, fresh, grassy vegetalness 
and where you start to get those those fruits and those spices um, from from the aged rum as well. And it sits right in the middle, and it's it's a totally different drink than it is with Blanc, but but an Elevé Soubois rum uh, tea punch is is really delicious. And generally speaking, you mentioned higher proofs. What what are you looking for? What what's your preference when it comes to um, proof of rum for this drink? Yeah, I mean, the fifty I think is a sweet spot, um, and with the the sugar and the lime that you'll be adding to it, um, you know, it, it brings it down just a bit and, and kind of alleviates all of that. Um, but I think 50, a 50, uh, percent hundred proof rum is, is kind of the, the sweet spot, um, for a tea punch. And then the final ingredient here, the cane syrup, how does that interact with the sort of dryness of the finish of this rum too? And, what are some other points we should be looking out for or being wary of or being wary of for this drink? Yeah. So cane syrup, um, is when I think of cane syrup, I think of a very specific thing, which is, uh, you know, there are these plastic bottles that come with little twist tops or, or sometimes glass bottles. Um, and in Martinique, every distillery has their own cane syrup that's meant to be used with their own rum. Obviously, most of those things are not available outside of Martinique, um, but it's it's those very kind of thick cane syrups that are what come to mind um, when I'm making a tea punch. Now, I think the equivalent is if you were to go get like a, a lighter raw cane sugar from the grocery store or something like that and make a, make a two-to-one syrup with that um, is, is kind of uh, the same idea. Uh, but I think really if you can find the, the petite con, um, the bottle of cane syrup with the twist top, that's, that's really what you want. Um, and in terms of quantity, um, I think that's a, a very wholly personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a, a quarter-sized dollop. Sometimes I'm in the mood for a little bit more. Sometimes I'm in the mood for a little bit less. Uh, and I've, I've seen people put a, a proper half ounce in there before. Um, so it, it really is... Uh, how you want your drink to taste. If you want it to be a sweetened rum or if you just want it as, as a little uh, salt and pepper. And, and, and how about that then? Why don't, why, why don't we start with this now? Why don't you uh, talk us through the, your own preparation of, if you're making this drink for yourself with um, some added quantities? Of course, this won't be like the, the natural when we're often talking, you know, uh, in ounces, half ounces or whatever. But if you're making that drink for yourself now, I'd love to hear if you can talk us through the preparation there. So for me, I'm starting with uh, two ounces of a Blanc Agricole. And in my perfect world, I'm probably grabbing a bottle of uh, Naissan Blanc. Uh, Naissan's a really awesome uh, family-owned, one of the last two family-owned distilleries uh, on Martinique. Um, It's bottled at 50%. Uh, and it is really, really, really fantastic. It's, it's all coming from a state grown sugar cane. That's right in this Valley. That's five minutes inland from the beach. Um, and it has this really, really fantastic complexity. And, and in terms of Blanc agricole might be the most complex. Um, and then from there, um, I guess before I'm, I'm starting with the rum, I'm, I'm putting a, a quarter size dollop of uh, cane syrup in the bottom of whatever rocks glass I happen to have lying around. Then I'm cutting off uh, a coin of lime 
Um, for me, I do like a, a touch of flesh or touch more than, than other people might. Um, you know, I like getting a couple drops of juice in there as well, probably like a quarter teaspoon of juice realistically. But, um, you know, I like a little bit of that, that juice to, to get hit in there. Uh, and then I'm doing two ounces of that Nason Blanc agricole. Um, and then, you know, if, if I happen to have a swizzle stick lying around, I'll swizzle them all together. If I have a kitchen knife, I might use that. If I have, uh, if I have, uh, any other <laughs> tool, whatever tool <laughs> I have, uh, to get it done, um, and just mix that up. And, and then, you know, I'll, I'll go sit on the, on the patio and, and I'll start sipping it. Amazing. And n- no ice, no additional garnish required, just keeping it very, very simple, very laid back. That's right. No ice, no garnish, besides just dropping that lime right in the glass. And then, yeah, you can sip away. No worry about dilution. No worry about things changing too much or, you know, uh, any kind of time restrictions on drinking this one. You can sip to your heart's content. That's right. And, you know, I think maybe a point that I didn't touch on enough was that, I've, I've drinking many, many, many tea punch before. Um, but it's, it's a very contextual drink. It's not something that I am drinking on my couch in December and it's not something that I'm drinking at a really nice, well-conditioned, well-air-conditioned bar. Mm-hmm. Um, tea punch and punch in general, um, was, was a worker's drink to help keep them cool. And, I didn't really understand the drink myself until I had had it in the context of uh, sitting outside in 95 degree weather with 90% humidity with the sun beating down on me that someone handed me a glass of room temperature rum that I understood why it didn't need ice and how magic it was to be sipping on that drink and to have this feeling of cooling wash over me. Uh, the first time I took a sip where it was, it was something that I was trying to unlock for so long that I, I didn't really get until I had it in the context that it's meant to be drank in. That's so wonderful. Um, definitely does seem a little bit counterintuitive there, but I'm, I, yeah, I've, feel like i need to try that imminently <laughs> especially as it's it, it definitely is uh, ratcheting up a little bit here in new york when it comes to temperature wise um just wondering whether you have any final thoughts on on this drink or today's conversation in general that we might not have covered so far i don't think so i think um with with all rum drinks and and uh with the tea punch specifically uh you, you gotta, you gotta go to the places and, and try them there. If, if you want to really get into Jamaican rum, go to Jamaica. If you really want to get into agriculture, go to Martinique. If, if, if you want to understand these things really, really well uh, on your next vacation, instead of going uh, to Hawaii, go, go to the islands. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think definitely many people after today's conversation will be convinced of what a great idea that would be. If not just to share that one experience that you described earlier and now we can take it into the second segment of our show here christine and get to know yourself a little bit more as a drinker and a bartender with our weekly questions how's that sound sounds fantastic awesome i'm gonna kick off here with question number one what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar i mean that's an easy question right (laughs) uh 
I've got a, I've got a bar cart full of, full of rum. Um, so much so that, uh, every, every month my fiance, uh, makes me take a bottle or two into work, uh, cause it starts to overflow a little bit. So it's, it's almost all rum. <laughs> and how many bottles exactly is too many bottles? Because this is a conversation that I'm having at home right now with, uh, with, with respect to gin. <laughs> oh, how many bottles is too many bottles? Uh, probably 40. Yeah. Um, yep. you know, tiny, tiny little apartment, tiny little bar cart. Um, some of them might've spilled over onto the floor because they ran out of space, you know, uh, 40 bottles is probably too many. <laughs> oh, well, you know, good to drink it at least. That's, that, that's, the, that's the upshot there. You gotta, you gotta open them. You gotta drink them, right? That's right. Fantastic. Question number two, what ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Hmm. It's, it's gotta be ice. Um, I know we just had a whole conversation about <laughs> making you drink ice, without ice. But <laughs> as a whole, I think that, that ice is, is underutilized and, uh, you know, the, the whole light ice thing, uh, is always funny. Um, but, but a using, using good ice and that doesn't mean, uh, you know, you have to go buy some fancy clear cube somewhere, but you know, if, if you're having a party and you're making drinks with crushed ice, go find your local Sonic. That's the best pebble ice you can get. Um, you know, or, or just a bag of ice from the grocery store that hasn't kind of been tainted by whatever's sitting in your freezer at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also, you know, I, I think the biggest misconception is, is the more ice that's in something, the quicker that it's going to melt. Um, it's the opposite. Funny enough, the more ice you put in your glass uh, up to a certain point, the the slower the ice is going to melt. And if you you fill your ice properly all the way to the top, uh, and heat isn't able to escape the glass, that ice is gonna gonna stay in there all day long. Wonderful. Question number three: What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? The most important piece of advice that I've been given is that the drinks don't matter. Um, obviously I've, I've spent my whole career, um, worrying about the drinks as, as do most bartenders. And we spend all this time learning and tasting and, uh, you know, t putting flavors together and, and reading the books and, and doing the research. And at the end of the day, we are in the business of hospitality and taking care of people and bringing people together. And, uh, if, if that isn't a part of it, then the drinks don't matter and they never did. Yeah, yeah. So, so important. Sometimes too often forgotten there. Uh, it's like you said before, it's all about the context, right? The drinks that you're mm -hmm. having, it's the context of where you're drinking them. Question number four here. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Oh, man. Uh, the two two come to mind immediately, so I'm gonna have to to uh, give a tie there. We'll, we'll, we'll give um, it to you. All right, thank you. Um, <laughs> the the first would would have to be Katana Kitten. Uh, regularly, the most fun that I have uh, in a bar every time I'm there, and and also a, a drinks program that really changed my perspective on drink making as a whole. Um, they they. Katana Kitten has allowed me and I'm sure many other bartenders to know that it's okay to have fun when making drinks. They do a great job of one, that. Yeah. 
Um, the other one has got to be uh, two schmucks in Barcelona, um, which, you know, for no other reason, I think is, is just one of the most well-executed bars on planet earth. Um, they do some of the best drinks I've ever had in one of the most relaxed environments I've ever had with some of the best conversations I've ever had with bartenders. Phenomenal. That's one that I think might not be as familiar to most folks listening. So if your vacation this year is taking you across to Barcelona instead of the islands that we spoke about, one to hit up. That's right. Final question here today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? I think about this all the time. <laughs> you know, there's there's so many uh, so many like deathbed drinks that I think are things that I would be so happy to have as my last drink. But when I really kind of boil it down to what is like the one drink that I always crave and that I'd be mad if I didn't have one last one of, I think it's uh, the Queens Park Swizzle. Yeah, uh, I will. I'll never be mad about having that drink. I'll never be mad about uh, drinking that drink, but I'll always be mad about not having that drink. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a fun one. Not one that I think has come up before. Um, definitely one we also need to discover on this show. So, um, yeah, Christian, thank you so much for your time today. I'm, I'm getting rid of my ice machine. That's it. From here on in, I'm just going room temp room temp all the way that's how you do it <laughs> at least when i'm drinking rum lime and sugar we, we have also established that ice is very important yes absolutely <laughs> well thanks again for your time um this has been a blast it's great talking to you cheers okay that was a lot of info but here's the good news every single episode of vine pairs cocktail college is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript so you can check it out there all over again also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Vine Pairs Tastings Director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Greenberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>